Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Now, the extremism we see is purely a byproduct of sectarianism, and it's more virulent. I'll tell you why. Because the extremism of the 90s was a response to a collective threat. Because the average, uh, the average like Saudi, or felt that Islam is being under attack. But today, it's different, because the attack is there, and it's real, like, you know, the Sunni families in their resort, they feel they've been attacked. They are being physically attacked by the Shia militia. So it's a direct. We have one is a response to a collective threat, but today it's a response to a direct threat, which makes it more effective in mobilizing people. I'll go back to the reasons, to the causes of extremism. And it started with the invasion of Iraq, the second, second Iraq war, second Gulf war. And actually, the American did two huge mistakes. Number one was the debathification. At the stroke of a pen, 400,000 people became insurgents because they were denied jobs, but at the same time, these were trained people and they kept their, their arms. The second thing the American did was the Constitution because the Constitution divided people into Sunni Shia and Kurds. So when the law looks at you as a Sunni or a Shia and a Kurd, not as an Iraqi, you'll feel that you're a Sunni or a Shia and a Kurd, or a Kurd before you feel that you're an Iraqi. And also the, what complicated the invasion is Sistani, Ayatollah Sistani, issued a fatwa not to resist the American, which made the Sunni look at the Shias as collaborators, as collaborators. And also... Uh, the American, they had this idea that the Shia have been oppressed for so long, so they, 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 they deserve a chance. Also, they look at them as less like even the, 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 the militias, though despite their relation to Iran, they were seen as less of a threat than the Saddamists and Al-Qaeda. And the reprisal were at low intensity, but then... When there was the, the Askaria bombing, Askaria is one of the very holy Shia shrine in Iraq. And then after that, really, the sectarianism, like the, 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 the violence became at a non-precedented level. Uh, the Shia militia, Jaish al-Mahdi, or Faylaq al-Badr, were taking the data of people from the Ministry of Interior and going after them. However, there was a correction, there was the surge, which was very, very successful. There was the awakening, and there was national reconciliation. And the violence uh, diminished at a very low level. However, all the, the, the outcomes of the surge were reversed due to the early disengagement of America. This was a very bad decision by President Obama to disengage while the, the, the surge was still fragile, while the outcome of the surge were still fragile. So Malki undid everything, undid the surge. He, he, all the, all the people of the Sahawat, he went after them. He killed them. I wish a colleague of mine was supposed to come. She's Iraqi. She would have spoke more about this. And uh, and he usurped the judicial system to his own to his own uh, to his own will, and this is how the Qaeda that was alienated during the surge fi found itself another opportunity to reemerge, and this is where we have the marriage of convenience between Al Qaeda 
represented by Zarqawi, and between the Saddamist, the two high-ranking officers of Saddam, Muhammad al-Duri and Ahmad Yunus. And this was the nucleus of ISIS. And actually, the Syrian crisis give it, gave it impetus because, you know, with, with uh, Assad, because in Syria, the Sunni look at the government as Assad, not as... as, as um, as the Alawite rule, and especially with the uh, with the engagement of Hezbollah, when Hezbollah was engaged in the Syrian conflict, they used a very sectarian narrative. They didn't go to Syria telling their people we're going to uh, defend a strategic partner. No, they went. They had the slogan that we are going to defend the tomb of Zainab, which is also a Shia shrine from the Umayyad. Umayyad, it's a long story, but these are the ones who, let's say, started. Uh, Sunnism, you know. Uh, so, and this, this, the embittered Sunni made, created a fertile ground for ISIS to start its endeavor. The first place ISIS took was Riqqa in March 2013. And this is how we had the sectarianism. So now, what do we expect? Now, ISIS is being defeated militarily, it's being bombed, but does it mean it's defeated? I don't think so, because the social incubator is still there. The insecurity is still there. It takes one person, only one person, to radicalize a whole village. So what do we expect in the future? First of all, we don't expect any stability, because as long as Assad is there, there will always be, the refugees will not come back. There will always be opposition. Uh, as we saw, see now, once one front closes, another front opens. You have now uh, a lot of disparity between the Sunni and the Shia. Don't forget, all the areas that are being bombed are Sunni area, whether in Mosul, whether they're being bombed by the coalition or by Assad forces. I'll give you an example. For example, Aleppo in Syria, which is a Sunni um, uh, city, and it's the industrial center of Syria. Now, all the factories relocated Tatartus and Lataqiyya, which are Alawites. So this will mean means that the Sunni area are even poorer and poorer, and this will create more dissentment among among um, among the Sunnis. Also, if you look in Iraq, the Sunni Iraqi doesn't look at the armed forces as national. And this is a big problem. So you don't see cooperation. It doesn't have legitimacy in the eyes of the Sunnis. If you take, for example, Lebanon, the army of Lebanon was very, very successful in fighting extremism. And they fought terrorist. It goes back to 2000, when in Sir al you had the extremism from Al-Qaeda who wanted to do an emirate in Sir al The reason why the army has been so successful in fighting terrorists is because everywhere the army goes, it, it, you, the people cooperate with him, with the army, because they look at the army as being impartial, not sectarian and national. So it's not Sunni, it's not Shia, it's not Christian, it's not Muslim. You don't have this with the Iraqi forces, armed forces. So, and also, regarding ISIS, if it's defeated now, that doesn't mean if defeated on the battleground, it doesn't mean it's defeated. Defeated on the losing ground, it means they have to dedicate less effort to collect the trash, run the schools, police the people. Then they can dedicate more effort to attacks. And we notice every time ISIS loses locally, they defect that by doing attacks in the West, to keep their prestige. You know, the most hideous attack, which is the Paris attack in 2015, happened after they lost Mount Sinjar. So unfortunately, I don't have good news to tell you. We don't expect any more. We expect more radicalization from the Sunni part, and we don't expect any stability in the near future. So what should we done? In a nutshell, what to, if we want to fight terrorism, we should not take terrorism in its narrow narrow, 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 narrow sense in a narrow sense. Because now terrorism is not like in the 90s where you have few lunatics who are in, in the caves of Tora Bora. No, it's different. Now extremism is entrenched in the society. You have to dry up the, the social incubator. And it's not by bombing them. You have, and if we want to take an example, when fighting terrorism was successful, I'll go back to the surge. The surge was successful because it was done simultaneously. 
they treated the Al-Qaeda the same way they treated the Shia militias, and they went after them simultaneously, and that's why it was successful. Now, with the Obama administration, they've been a thinking, which I think is very bad, which is sequencing. It says, like, let them destroy themselves. Which, which one is a more direct threat? The Al-Qaeda, you know, the, the ISIS. So we let Assad, the Shia militia, loose. Let them destroy them, and then we think what we do with Assad and the Shia militias. But this is bad, because they don't destroy each other. They feed each other, and actually... Actually, the existence of a threat will help radicalize the Sunni. It will not inhibit the radicalization. So, in a more concrete steps, what sh other than changing this whole overall approach and looking at terrorism as a comprehensive, as solution to, to terrorism in a comprehensive manner, if we say as steps, what should we do? First of all, we need a new awakening in Iraq. There is no... You need another national reconciliation. The army needs to be restructured to become really national. And look, it needs to have legitimacy in the eye of everyone. And then you need to work on the disparity in the Sunni area because the disparity creates resentments. And also, as long as Assad is there, there will be no solution. So they should really think about that, about what to do with Assad. And also, at the, uh, finally, you need to engage with the local councils. Now in Syria, there are like 300 local councils, the latest count. These represent a civil alternative. Engaging with them will be a best, uh, best choice to, to fight terrorism. And so you have to go at the grassroots level. And this is, this is the foundation to build governance, legitimate governance, sustainable, sustainable governance in the country. So in a nutshell, in, uh, in the short run, what form of governance we should work on, it should be an inclusive of governance. An inclusive governance that where everyone feel they are part of the political process. They don't feel there is a threat. But in the long run, the best way to fight terrorism is through a civil state. Because when you have a civil state, all these differences, the sectarianism, tribalism, ethnicity, they fade away when the citizen is treated as equal. And we can see as an example Tunisia. Tunisia fought extremism not by the army. They fought it because they have a civil state. Even the Islamist group, which is al-Nahda, which is an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood, they had to rebrand, they had to change. They said, we are now a civil party with an Islamic, uh, Islamic background. So I think in the long run, our only hope is to work on a civil state. Thank you. Thank you. So we had a, a, a view from the inside looking out. Now we can get a view from the outside looking in. It is such a pleasure to be here this morning, and thank you for the opportunity. Uh, Dave is a good friend of mine, Dave DeRoche, so I'm happy to substitute for him while he sits on the plane, hopefully uh, on business class, having a good time. Um, anyways, uh, what I'll try to uh, look at is um, what the uh, present U.S. policy is towards the Middle East. Um, as we know, uh, President Trump will announce at 2 o'clock this afternoon uh, whether or not the United States will uh, remain within the uh, so-called JCPOA, the uh, Iran agreement. And, and um, that decisions will have uh, ripple impacts on uh, Iraq, uh, Syria, uh, the Gulf, and um, what U.S. policy towards the region could look like going forward. Um, going back to February, um, there are a few things, uh, there are a few important diplomatic developments in the region that have... Uh, uh, been missed by um, many regional observers, including here in Washington, because it seems that we have one news day after another, and we don't quite know what to expect next. So let me just allow to give you a little background of what has happened that could help inform President uh, Trump's strategy going forward, whether or not he stays or decides to stay within the JCPOA. And um, uh, some of you may recall that then Secretary of State Rex Tillerson in um, early February or mid-February paid a regional visit uh, that um, um, accumulated with the um, so-called uh, Kuwait summit. Um, and the Kuwait summit's purpose was really to um, raise money for post-ISIS reconstruction in Iraq. Uh, we know that... Um, 
Kuwait because of its traumatic experience with the Iraqi um, occupation uh, in the 1990s uh, feels an obligation towards um, shepherding stability in Iraq and has played um, a uh, tremendous diplomatic role, but also um, uh, put um, money towards uh, these efforts. And and just to give you the data here, uh, Kuwait pledged $1 billion um, in, in direct investments after conference. Saudi Arabia and Qatar each pledged a billion and the UAE pledged $500 million in assistance and $5.5 billion in loans for the Baghdad government. Now, these are pledges, and um, uh, whether or not these pledges will be um, actualized will be contingent on two factors. The first factor is uh, President Trump's announcement this afternoon, and the second um, um, factor will be the outcome of the Iraqi elections, um, which is also taking place on the 12th. Assuming um, that uh, Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi wins, we could see some momentum moving forward um, on uh, on what has been a positive trajectory of uh, normalization between Saudi Arabia and the UAE and, and the Iraqi government in particular over the last um, couple of years. Um, assuming that, um, uh, that Nur al-Maliki and his bloc wins the Iraqi election. I would, I would say all bets are off because um, we know that he has had a, quite an anti-American agenda, and there is no reason to assume that it will be different this time. And then, if if um, President Trump withdraws from the JCPOA, um, we can expect that Iran will double down in its efforts in Iraq because it's really important to understand that. What some analysts have missed about uh, Trump's desire to be unpredictable about the JCPOA is that he's using uh, that um, uncertainty as leverage. Why? Because we know that um, the Iranian government um, is dependent on sanctions relief uh, coming uh, from the JCPOA. And if you look at um, the recent riots in Iran, um, which were economically driven uh, without the sanctions relief and without opening up Iran to foreign investment, Iran, the Iranian government will not have enough money uh, to sustain the economy, to, to pay for the government um, expenses, and, and with that will not have enough money to, to spread mischief, uh, to put it diplomatically, in the region. So the idea was to create uncertainty over Iran's um, over the JCPOA to, to so to uh, speak, squeeze the Iranian government. That's that's been the understanding of why Trump is playing this this strategy. A lot of the criticism against the JCPOA at the time um, when it was negotiated was really not about the technicality of the agreement, whether about sunset clause you could say sunset clause could be extended or or, or verification uh, systems could be. Could be improved. These these are really not, in my view, as an analyst, the, the core of the apple. The core of the apple was that at the time there was a feeling that the Iranian government was about to collapse from its you know, from its economic malaise, and the criticism was really that the pres that the Obama administration extended an, a lifeline to engage with the uh, with the Iranians, and instead of letting it collapse, you know that's that could be argued either way. We don't quite know, but we are where we are today, mm -hmm. and so. This is bound to have a lot of uncertainty on how Iraq will go forward. Now, let's take the other side of the argument, and uh, let's assume that President Trump stays within the Iran agreement, um, and let's assume for a moment that Haider al-Abadi wins re-election on the 12th. Then what kind of um, momentum or movement could we find on the U.S. diplomatic front engaging in the region? And it is um, within this context, um, Washington has been, at least up until now, uh, executing what appears to be a two-pronged strategy that focuses on the reconstruction of territory liberated from ISIS, while at the same time seeking to ensure that Iraq does not evolve into an Iranian vessel state built on Lebanon's Hezbollah uh, model. And this is really important to understand because some of the diplomatic momentum that Rex Tillerson was able to build on uh, going into the Kuwait summit was that um, movement between uh, the Iraqi government and Saudi Arabia and with U.S. pressure was able to 
prevent the Kurdish regional government and the Shiite government of, uh, of Iraq from confrontation right after the Kurdish referendum in September, as you surely recall. So these diplomatic developments were able to sustain the gains that had been achieved after ISIS uh, was defeated from Mosul and from uh, these areas. And sustaining these gains going forward will be critical. So the question is, how can that be done? The idea was, of course, was to use the Gulf, the uh, the wealthy six nation members of the um, Arabian Gulf or the Gulf Corporation Council to, on one hand, bring in the necessary resources for uh, post-Iraq uh, reconstruction, um, as was embodied in the in the, uh, at the Kuwait summit. On the other hand, we have seen some uh, media reports recently that President Trump, uh, who has not only called for an end to this nasty dispute, which has also played out here in Washington in, in, in horrible, horrible ways, um, he has called on, on, on these uh, six nations to play a larger military role even in Syria. So what would that entail? It would probably entail uh, some sort of uh, peace and stability operations, to bring um, the Arab states uh, to play a stabilizing role in the region. In order to do that, of course, um, the issue in the Gulf has to be settled because we know that that's a political dispute. So I think that that's where there's some momentum uh, going forward. I think also what we, we, we will look at is what kind of U.S. diplomatic pressure Will there be on um, on the Iraqis to ensure, uh, to make sure that the election is not only um, you, you know technically uh, <laughs> competent, but but also to, to minimize any sort of Iranian meddling in the election and 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 influence the parties going forward? These these are difficult questions, of course. And then, uh, broader speaking, I think that. If there is a deal to be had with the Iranians, it's, it's on its regional interference. And how do you use um, uncertainty and over the JCPOA to pressure the Iranians to modify uh, their behavior in the region? And that is, of course, the, 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 the diplomatic questions that everybody is trying to understand. But what we have seen so far is that uh, Trump's on predictable and hardball tactics have actually brought the North Koreans to the negotiations table, and few people would have predicted that a year ago. Um, so who, who, who is to say that we cannot negotiate with the Iranians under different terms? But uh, I'll leave it at that. Thanks. Jim? Okay. Uh, I'm here to say that is Islamist extremism has a very bright future after ISIS is dead and buried. And I would caution that uh, ISIS is well, not I'm glad I didn't eat lunch first. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it will surprise nobody here. Uh, but many of the conditions that paved the way for the rise of the ISIS are still replete in the region. That's dysfunctional government, sectarian tensions, civil wars, foreign interventions. Uh, and, and although ISIS has been militarily whittled away, it's a very resilient and determined organization. It made a comeback once before back in 2009, uh, after the U.S. turned its back uh, in Iraq. And if that happens uh, again, then ISIS will, will be back much quicker than I, I think people expect. Uh, but back then, when it was the is known as the Islamic State of Iraq, um, before that, and al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, it was... Uh, decimated and militarily defeated, but the political conditions that gave rise to it uh, continued, and, and they're still there, uh, particularly in Syria, but uh, also to a lesser extent in Iraq, unless these elections go uh, well. Uh, so not only is ISIS going to try to make a comeback, uh, but it could mutate uh, and, and be followed on by other type Islamist extremist organizations. Uh, and here I think 
it's possible to make much faster uh, and more sustained progress in Iraq than in Syria because of the reasons mentioned. Assad, as long as Assad is in power, he's a perfect foil for ISIS, a non-Sunni, uh, sectarian, brutal government that's going to uh, continue to uh, feed uh, Sunni extremism. Uh, and not only, uh, although there's been a lot of attention on ISIS, it's important to remember that Al-Qaeda is still there. It's growing like a fungus in northwest Syria in Idlib province. It's folded itself into a series of fronts that's changed its name. Uh, now it's the uh, Organization for the Liberation of the Sham or Greater Syria, uh, and it's, it's seeking to absorb the resources of other groups uh, and eventually hijack them and absorb them into a, a greater al-Qaeda. So even if ISIS is gone, al-Qaeda is going to remain. Uh, I think it's hopeful in Iraq with the May 12th elections in order to build a more inclusive uh, government, as um, Kitab said. Uh, uh, but... <laughs> It's going to be very difficult to translate some of the good things that are being said by Prime Minister Abadi into real change on the ground inside Iraq uh, to build up an inclusive structure in which uh, the Sunni Arab minority, uh, which is ISIS's target audience, they feel that they have a, a stake uh, in uh, the future of an Iraqi government. Because although many Sunni Arabs rejected the harsh ideology of ISIS, they saw it as a lesser evil compared to what they perceived to be illegitimate governments in, in Baghdad and uh, Damascus. And that may change in Iraq. It's not going to change in, in Syria. Uh, so ISIS, as well as al-Qaeda, is going to be remain a factor. And then also I think one uh, generally under-reported uh, 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 threat vector for ISIS is going to be the refugee camps. And historically, uh, extremist groups have flourished in refugee camps, going back to the, the, the Palestinian uh, camps, which generated m many uh, extremist groups, particularly in countries that were hostile to Israel. Uh, the Taliban, which came out of the Pakistani uh, Af Afghan refugee camps with substantial help from Pakistani ISI intelligence. Uh, they grew uh, from the camps to take over a big chunk of Afghanistan. Uh, so I think wa Washington, uh, Baghdad, and the Erbil, the Kurdistan regional government, uh, need to be uh, cognizant of this long-term threat and take steps to prevent uh, ISIS from anchoring itself and embedding itself in, in these refugee camps. And in Syria, this is going to be even more of a problem because there's a lot more external refugees and a, a, a lot more internal, uh, internally displaced people. Uh, so that's going to be a, a long-term uh, gift for ISIS that's going to keep giving. Looking outside of Iraq and Syria, it's important to note that ISIS is still expanding, uh, particularly in Asia, uh, Afghanistan, the Philippines. Uh, it has, it's flourishing uh, in growing slower, but still growing in places that are, are racked by civil wars, such as uh, uh, Yemen, Somalia. Uh, it sustained some setbacks in Libya, but it remains a threat. Uh, and it's still uh, in Africa, uh, where it's still uh, allied with uh, uh, the, the Nigerian movement. Uh, uh, secondly, uh, another factor that's going to favor extremism uh, outside of uh, even ISIS or al-Qaeda is, is the fact that there were more than 25,000 foreign fighters that flocked to the so-called caliphate, and uh, many of them were killed there, but uh, some of them are returning home and could become a reservoir of support for ISIS or future such Islamist extremist movements. Uh, third, the civil wars in uh, Libya, Yemen, and Somalia are very attractive uh, places where ideological movements uh, and extremist movements continue to flourish. 
Uh, it's important to note that state support for extremism is still very strong, and it's not just a Sunni phenomenon. Uh, as previous speakers mentioned, Iran is pumping out a, a lot of support for uh, Shiite extremists. In the Iraqi militias, Iran has developed a foreign legion recruiting as far away uh, uh, Shiites from as far away as uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan, and is deploying this foreign legion in Syria. Uh, it's part of I, what I see as this kind of Hezbollah strategy of of radicalizing and breaking off splinters of pre-existing groups and turning them into uh, more of a surrogate-type operation. Uh, and we're seeing it even in uh, Yemen uh, with the Houthis. Uh, and those kind of uh, Shiite extremist movements uh, are not going to go away anytime soon, and they're going to help fuel the Sunni uh, extremists in reaction. Uh, that said, I, there's also uh, room for optimism, which, I, you know, they say in the Middle East, uh, 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 and, and a realist is an optimist with experience. Uh, but there are some reasons to, uh, to look ahead with optimism. And one was mentioned uh, that today's announcement on Iran is likely to lead uh, to enhance U.S. sanctions on Iran, which will reduce the amount of resources Iran can uh, distribute to its Shiite uh, foreign legion, as well as to the Sunni extremists it supports, because Iran can be very ecumenical when it comes to f uh, furthering its national interests, We're talking about its support for Hamas, Palestine, Islamic Jihad, and even non-Islamist extremists, such as the Popular Front for the Liberation of, of Palestine, General Command, which also has done Iran's bidding in the past. Uh, so that's one reason for optimism. I think uh, a second reason is the push for reform in Saudi Arabia, where Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman has been uh, talking about the need for a more tolerant Islam. Uh, I think it's going to be a very difficult uh, long haul to uh, change uh, the Faustian bargain that the royal family has made with some of the Wahhabi uh, religious leaders, but I think he's uh, saying some good things, and if he succeeds, uh, that could have uh, a pronounced long-term effect in, in changing kind of the, the ecology of uh, financial support for these kind of uh, Sunni extremist groups. Uh, and... Uh, finally, uh, when it comes to uh, U.S. policy, I agree with many of the suggestions of the, the previous speakers, and I overlap in many respects. I would just add that, uh, uh, you know, we shouldn't see this just as a Sunni phenomenon, that, uh, although Hezbollah has been out of the news, at least in this country, uh, it's uh, really fueling a lot of... Uh, Future terrorism in Syria, uh, it's training uh, Iraq, not only Iraqi militias, but the, the Houthis uh, and elsewhere, and expanding the base of extremism. And, and that just goes to the point that I Iran is part of the problem. It, it shouldn't be seen as part of the solution. Uh, I think the last administration did see ISIS as perhaps a unifying influence that could bring Iran and the U.S. together. But Iran, uh, the regime sees ISIS more, as it's publicly said, as a U.S. creation and does not uh, see that same basis for cooperation. Uh, so with that, let me just uh, turn it open yeah, to I, questions. I want to <clears throat> get the microphone, bring Robin um, some constant conversation, because the one thing I found interesting is, is, is what all of you seem to suggest in your own way is this notion that, that the 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 center of gravity of this problem is really in the Middle East, and that the the challenge is really in the state policies. Is what are you doing with Iraq? What happens in Syria? What happens in Lebanon? What happens in Yemen? I found that interesting. So, but Robin's our expert on on uh, what's radicalization, what's going on in Western Europe, and I want to ask him how that fits in and squares with with what he just heard. Well, yeah, um, certainly the situation in Middle East. Um, drove so many of the Europeans, or at least it was a factor in driving Europeans to, to Syria in, in 2013. Um, 
I guess my one of my kind of observations just from from hearing the panel, I was I would be intrigued if you could kind of flesh out a little bit more about how you see the situation in Syria now, where you've got a a status quo where ISIS has been pushed out of many of the conservative Sunni Arab areas, um, but the force that is replacing it and is holding that territory, for example, kind of Marxist cult in some areas. Um, is not one that seems to me to be a, a long-term viable force that can hold some of these sunny Arab areas. So I'd be wondering if you could comment on that. Yeah, so let me, let's try to collect a few questions, and then I'll have each of the panelists kind of pick and choose what, what they go. So other um, questions for the audience? So um, so this is one of them kind of more specificity in what the actual policies might be in Syria. Others? Yeah, Steve, do you have it? Do you want to? I guess uh, trying to get below the or down to the level that I usually work at, uh, you know, I, I know uh, you, you talked about the, the economic end of it and trying to the development part. W what else can we do, <clears throat> you know, other than killing bad guys, uh, which unfortunately I think is the easiest part of, of this kind of operation. How else can we address this other than trying to, you know, develop things, get jobs? You know, we know that that sort of takes people's minds off of killing each other. Unfortunately, not usually not fast enough. Uh, but what other tactics, if you will, can we add to the toolbox, or should we, you know, hope our governments add to the toolbox to to try and address this? And that's that's for all of you. Other question? Yes, sir. Um, it has been mentioned that Assad is part of the problem and really a source for extremism. What do you think should be done with Assad? I mean, this is a huge question, I know, but if there are any suggestions on what should be done with Assad. Yeah. Yeah, I want to follow up on Steve's question. So you, uh, Ms. Khatib, you talked about civil society and building that, and I'd like to hear more about what you think um, the U.S. government and um, the actors in the region can do to build up civil society. Um, who are our partners to build up human rights, which is essential for building a stronger civil society? So let's do this. We have about 10 minutes. So let me cycle back through the panel, and if we could just maybe split that up with each one taking a couple of minutes. And um, in kind of pulling all the questions together, if, if we could just, you know, go through the, the, the laundry list of Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Libya, kind of the countries of concern, the, some specificity about what do you think some of the things we could be done, either in the civil society side or in the political dimension, or what do you do about Assad, and, and just kind of give your laundry list of, of recommendations you have. And maybe we'll, we'll start with Jim and work, work this way, and if you could each take a, maybe two minutes or so, we'd be, we'd be good. Uh, well, just getting back to your point about the uh, perceived illegitimacy of some of the Kurdish forces in Arab uh, parts of Syria, I think that is going to be a long-term, a short-term problem, and then the Syrian democratic forces uh, need to be broadened out to include as many local Arabs as possible, and that this uh, is something that... Uh, you know, the U.S. alone uh, is not very well equipped to do, but perhaps with the greater cooperation, particularly with some of the Gulf cooperation allies, uh, I know the Trump administration is asking for the Saudis and Emiratis to step forward and help stabilize eastern, eastern uh, Syria and uh, help replace U.S. Uh, forces that are gradually going to be withdrawn. Uh, perhaps the British and French can contribute more there, uh, but you know I think the U.S. is is in out of the nation building business, uh, and so it it needs to work uh, more closely with allies that have uh, financial resources that they can help uh, uh, stabilize these kind of liberated liberated areas from ISIS in order to build some kind of governance there. Uh, but I think Arab allies are much better 
equipped to identify the problems and help uh, the, the local Arabs there to, to build more inclusive structures. Uh, uh, in, in elsewhere and in some of these other areas, uh, I think the U.S. should work uh, closely with uh, recognized governments wherever possible. In Yemen, uh, that is a, a pretty weak internationally recognized government uh, uh, but ultimately, there's got to be some kind of a political settlement there because the, the two warring coalitions uh, do not have the military uh, wherewithal to gain an outright victory. So there's got to be some settlement, and the sooner the better, I think, in order to weaken uh, Iranian influence over the Houthis. Uh, but that's going to be a, a very difficult uh, diplomatic road to hoe also. And I think it would help if the Trump administration will put a higher priority in repairing the the uh, the break between the Saudis and the Emiratis and Qatar, because that only helps Iran. Uh, uh, and um, that should be very high on the diplomatic list. Yeah, and just to kind of restate it, what you said about you know this administration is not in the nation-building business, that, that just means that this administration is not interested in a large physical presence on the ground. It doesn't mean or it should mean that it's not going to be engaged diplomatically, politically, and providing resources and leadership and, and, and working with partners in the region. Right? Yeah, I hope it doesn't. But, uh, you know, I'm nervous about the massive economic resources that are going to be needed for humanitarian aid and reconstruction, some of these areas, uh, and the important thing of generating jobs. I don't think the U.S. should be involved in generating jobs. I think that's up to local governments and and are uh, also with the f aid from GCC allies. Thanks. I'll, I'll add a couple of points. Uh, the first point was that um, at the Kuwait summit, the largest contributor was Turkey, and um, it is expected that in the post-ISIS reconstruction that a lot of Turkish businesses that um, are geographically close and have the uh, cultural and cultural fluency and, and, and um, understanding and relationships in the region can play an important role. So I think that that's already happening. Um, the second part that is really important, I think, is to understand that in this environment, holding the status quo is a goal in itself. Mm -hmm. um, what we have seen with the collapse of the Gulf Corporation Council over this crisis is that unless the United States actually engages at every stage, <laughs> bad things can happen. And um, going to the Syria and Iraq part, um, I think that if you look at the political dynamics in the region, um, in, in the Gulf in particular, it is um, unrealistic to expect any sort of peacekeeping forces from the Gulf uh, being there doing good work and working together uh, without U.S. leadership and, and support. So, you know, we could have another nasty proxy war uh, if we just bring in these guys um, uh, that will support different groups. That's what exactly what happened in Syria in the beginning. The Qataris and the, the Saudis were supporting different actors. The Turks were supporting different actors. And, and at the end, it just added to the chaos and instability. So in this case, I, you know, I, I don't want to use the word nation building, but... Uh, Without U.S. leadership in mm -hmm. the region, right. without U.S. coordination, um, then nothing can happen. But I do think that President Trump has a has a point, and that is that the um, Arab states and the Gulf Arab states, in particular, should have equity in this. This is the um, this is where U.S. Arab um, future can come together and help stabilize the region. Uh, for that reason, right now, the first priority will have to be to settle this, this dispute in the Gulf so that the resources, the economic resources, the military capabilities that we have developed um, by training the various armies and the GCC, um, we can bring them together in Syria and, and help stabilize um, the areas. I think that that's also the opportunity in Iraq. I think in the best case scenario of Iraq is that Iraq remains an independent state, not an Iranian client state. And in order for that to happen, we have to have we have to encourage and push for further GCC-Iraq relations and strengthen those dynamics and help um, strengthen the, the peace and the stability operations. Um, so there are there, there's some opportunity there. Before we move on to Dr. Kattab, any either one of you have a thought on the future of Assad? 
Well, I think trying to uh, overthrow Iran and making uh, oh. trying to overthrow Assad and making that a military goal is a bridge too far. But I think it should be a long-term diplomatic goal because he's, as long as he's there, Syria is going to be a, a broken and unstable state that, that and will generate spillover, very. Uh, Toxic spillover effects to its neighbor. So, it, I, you know, over time, I think the U.S. should be looking to move him out of there. But uh, I think that's going to be a long-term diplomatic process. Uh, Do you have any thoughts on Assad? I think I think shrugging shoulders is good. That works a lot with Syria policy. The, the, the wild card is that the Israelis said that um, unless the Iranians back down in uh, right. in in Syria, then Assad will be. A, up for for table, target. Right. So, so so I think that's a wild card. We don't quite know how that will play out. Thank you, doctor? Okay, I just want to comment on something Mr. Nobauer, Dr. Nobauer said about U.S. leadership, which is very important. The reason why we have the chaos we have in the Arab world, in the post-Arab spring, is because of U.S. retrenchment during Obama, uh, Obama era. Because U.S. was a balancing factor between the different regional powers, between Turkey, Saudi, Israel, uh, Iran. Now when the U.S. retrenched from the region, this allowed for the regional powers, Turkey, Iran, and Saudi, to compete among each other. And this is why we have this proxy war. Each one has his hand in Syria. So the U.S. leadership is very, very important. It will create a balancing factors, and I think U.S. should broker a deal between the different the different uh, the different countries to have stability because each one of them is feeding a proxy, it's feeding uh, a militia on the ground. Uh, I'll go back to Madam your question about civil society, and it goes also it ties to Robin. Is when Robin asks was when 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 Daesh withdraws, what do we have? We'll have a void. Who will fill this void? And actually, the best person, I mean, the best element to fill the void is the civil society. And it's not something coming down from the moon. It existed. What happened? How these local councils? And I didn't speak much of them about them because we only have eight minutes. Now it's good. I have a chance. Thank you for the questions because I'm very adamant on local council. Local councils, where are an indigenous experience. The local council started forming when the government in Syria, as type of punishment, started withdrawing services. Like they don't send teachers, they don't give. So people, among themselves, started organizing their affairs, started organizing their basic services. Like someone who would be a doctor, who would be now responsible for teaching the kids. Someone else who, maybe a, a merchant, was responsible for collecting the trash. And this is how, and this is how the local council it started spontaneously and and they they actually now with because the Syrian crisis took so long they got some expertise they come some skills they got more formalized they have elections they are uh, they are the, the nucleus of any democratic free Syria and stable Syria we want to see because they choose their leadership by an election or consensus but there is election Last time I wrote, uh, I read an, uh, a report about the election of the local councils in Sarakib. Tears came to my eye because you see a real democratic experience in front of our eyes in the Arab world with a big, very strong uh, women, um, you know, contribution with women participation. So the best alternative is this one, civil alternative. And I hope something in Syria, you don't want the alternative to be, let's say, what after Assad, post-Assad, what do you do? The worst thing would be to bring a solution similar to the one that brought to Lebanon, where the militiamen, the warlords, became the government. And this, why, this is why after 20 years you don't have electricity, you don't have trash collection, because militia and man cannot become statemen. They have predatory attitude, they have the rent-seeking behavior. So the key is to marginalize, and to marginalize them, you have to start with their bosses, which are the regional powers, and to give pave the way for the civil society to take a greater role. And the government should start bottom-up. And this is how you fill the void. This is the local, local, the local, local, uh, local councils would be the nucleus for the governance for the government, uh, 
And it will be, it should be a decentralization. And I think for Syria, the best formula is administrative decentralization because administrative decentralization is, is the only viable uh, the only viable alternative to political decentralization, which will basically break up the country into three, four states that will keep on fighting among each other. Uh, so, and what we can do, and I think, you, Steve, you ask, what can we do? First, we have to uh, do capacity building for these local councils because a lot of the UN, uh, UN agencies, European Union agency worked with them, but they work with them more on a relief basis, like to provide relief and assistance, but no one has really worked with them on capacity building. There should be more uh, engagement with them, capacity building, to and to look at them in the long run as the basis for the state, as the basis for the government. Thank you. Well, I, I want to thank uh, all our panelists for a, a great um, discussion. So I use the word uh, center gravity with some intentionality. So you the way you know, Clausewitz, you said, you use a lot of, you do a lot of things in wars. You bomb, you go left, you go right, you go center. But there, at the end of the day, there's something that is animating your opponent, right? Which enables them to be strong and resilient. And you want to get to that. And I, I think this has been helpful in the discussion as we think about transnational terrorism as a phenomenon. We could talk about all kinds of things, radicalization online and social networking and this and that and everything else. But I, I you kind of made an argument here today that this, the, the center of gravity, the root of this problem is in the Middle East, and it, it is rooted in uh, the, the conditions and policies of, of, uh, uh, of a cluster of states. And unless those conditions are ameliorated, that uh, there's, there's always the smolder, right, that the forest fire can rage back again. I think that's um, an interesting and provocative analysis. It's uh, very helpful and, and lays out a, a very dramatic series of challenges uh, for this administration and exercising leadership in the region. So please join me in thanking our panelists and thank you so much for coming. Thanks for filling in there. I thought you did awesome. For Thank sure. you. Pleasure. Sorry, I messed up your name there. No, that's okay. I had a 50-50 shot. I was just. <laughs>